Full disclosure, I've been rolling, so we should start. Oh gosh, okay. Hi, I'm Grace. I'm Sam. I'm Dalton. I'm Kelvin. I'm Jacob. And I'm Robin. We're a fly on the wall, and we are so pumped to officially be back on campus at Georgetown. Thank you to all the subscribers who have stuck along for the ride, and welcome to all our new listeners. For all those listening for the first time, Fly on the Wall is a student-run podcast from the Georgetown University Institute of Politics and Public Service, and your weekly window into how the most impactful moments in politics unfold. From Capitol Hill to the campaign trail, we seek to pull back the curtain on how the biggest decisions are made by talking to the insiders who make them happen. Now that we are all back on the hilltop, we thought we'd kick off season 10 a bit differently. With a look back on major events from our interviews while the swarm was dispersed across the country. Despite the lockdown, we sat down virtually with multiple leaders, all of them at the front lines of many issues of the past year, including the COVID-19 crisis and the 2020 election cycle. And the flies are definitely excited to be back recording in studio. And by that, we mean in an Arupe contemplative room. That's true, and boy is it hot in here. I'm sweating through my shirt. But before we get started, make sure to follow us on social media, at FlyOnTheWallPod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. And if you have any thoughts on the fly, you can shoot us an email at our new official Georgetown University email account, FlyOnTheWall at Georgetown.edu. Ooh, feels good. <laughs> okay, so in March 2020, as we all know, the world shut down due to COVID-19. And the Fly podcast went virtual. And I don't think any of us expected that we would still be grappling with the effects of the pandemic today. Moving all of our interviews onto Zoom, however, did expand our flight path beyond DC. Last spring, we uh, interviewed Ginny Durkin, the mayor of Seattle, who managed the first outbreak of COVID-19 in a major US city. Shout out to Sam for setting up that interview. To paraphrase Macklemore, the sage poet from my hometown of Seattle, <laughs> you can't keep the fly down no matter how hard it rains. Sure. When I sit back and listen to our conversation with Mayor Durkin, I'm reminded of what a saga the pandemic has been. I mean, testing supplies, vaccine shortages. I remember flying home with a scarf wrapped around my mouth right when we shut down in 2020. And, you know, Mayor Durkin really highlighted the intersection of political communication and public health messaging. Yeah, let's hop into that Ginny Durkin interview a little bit. I, I want to call her Mayor Durkin, um, but when we spoke with her, the first thing she said was, Call me Jenny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, now, so this is a clip um, when Jacob and I sat down virtually with um, Mayor Jenny Durkin of Seattle. Uh, and this is from March 2021, so almost a full year after the lockdowns and the virus had really hit the United States. I think what, what has reason we are most successful is, as elected leaders, we agreed to base our decisions on science and public health and we agreed to speak with one voice. And so we would have disagreements sometimes, but we thought it's so important that we be unified in the strategies because a virus doesn't respect a city line or a county line. Um, and you've got to have consistency between them if you really want to fight the disease. I'm not quite sure since from March 2020 up until today that we've had consistency when it comes to public health messaging on the virus. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. Uh, just offering my personal perspective as both a college student and uh, someone who lives in Texas and DC, the mass culture is definitely different. Mm. A lot of my friends, they go to University of Texas, University of Houston. Apparently they're not required to wear masks the same way we are over here at Georgetown. 
So you can definitely see that there's different mass cultures and depending on who your governor is or even who your mayor is, the laws around it are just different. We've also just had to learn so many things. I mean, there was a time when people weren't sure collectively if it was worth wearing a mask. Uh, that was something that the CDC changed messaging about in the beginning of the pandemic. Was, Is this even worth doing? You know, I remember I was fleeing back to Seattle, which was one of the first hotspots back in March 2020. And at first there wasn't any guidance to say wear a mask. And I remember right before I got on the flight, a friend of mine said, you know, maybe you should like put like a scarf or something over your mouth on the flight. And now like we're all sitting around with like three masks on us all the time going in and out of buildings. Yeah, I, I mean, I think part of it too is like people who are not scientists are very often the ones who are trying to make these decisions and figure these policies out. Like in Oklahoma, uh, in our grocery stores, eventually they changed to like one-way aisles, um, except it wasn't implemented super well because it was totally possible to reach a dead end <laughs> like in the corner of the grocery store and not be allowed to walk back the other way. So like figuring, figuring out logistically how to even enforce helpful policies was huge. Well, it's great. as you pointed out, there was also a monumentous election in the middle of us as a country trying to deal with this pandemic. Yeah, not to mention all the, all the changes that came with a new political party running the government and with that, a new CDC, new officials, constant change um, at the government level, not to mention just coordinating with those public health officials to set policies and to set kind of an agenda for like getting masks out, getting PPE out, getting vaccines and that whole program rolling. So all of that was kind of happening in tandem to the coronavirus itself evolving into the Delta variant, which is what we're facing today. Yeah, whether it's different governments between Texas and D.C. or different governments because of an election and new political parties in charge, it's also been difficult to determine consistent policy because public health officials and scientists are also learning along with us um, since COVID is a really new virus that came out in December 2019. So uh, not only are the general public, um, you know, receiving a lot of different signals from public health officials and scientists, but scientists are also continually finding out what to do about this virus. Yeah, Jacob. I don't know if you remember this, but we were workshopping questions for one of our interviews, and you remarked, does science need their own political communications person? <laughs> and I thought that was like, kind of, yeah. I mean, with like our evolving knowledge of this pandemic. That's definitely valid, because uh, I think something that's really important to remember is that they're not just trying to spread information, they're trying to combat disinformation. And I know in the media, I hear a lot of stories about disinformation, a lot of stuff on all those websites and everything. All those websites. All those websites. Because <laughs> um, I'm not going to name names. Those websites. <laughs> the media, though, did have like a huge learning curve, too, because, you know, I'm a journalism student. I'm taking journalism classes. They don't teach us science. Um, so, no, like, nor should they. Nor should they. <laughs> but, I mean, reporters and writers in newsrooms are also having to figure out how to explain these scientific concepts to the American public in a way that makes sense, but they have to make sense of it first. That, that's something we talked about. I'm about to hit y'all with a killer transition. That's something we talked about with Julie Pace, uh, who's actually the next, the next interview that we're going to look into. Uh, I have not selected clips from that yet. Boo. <laughs> um, but in about two days, I bet I'll have something figured out for that. 
Okay, so it has been more than two days. Uh, we had a slight COVID scare, but rest assured, everyone is happy and healthy. And I have now selected a clip uh, from our Julie Pace interview. Uh, one of the things that I found really interesting was what she had to say about the transition to a virtual space, um, the way that it affected her collaboration with her peers, which I think is super relevant for those of us sitting in this room right now, because uh, we kind of had to face the same challenge. So here's, here's Julie Pace on that. Oh, goodness. You know, we're talking like one year, almost to the day. The 13th of March was the day that uh, my bureau shut down. And, you know, I thought we'd be gone a month. I really did. I thought we'd be, see you guys in a month or so. You know, and it was really hard at the start trying to replicate, like, the energy of a newsroom and the just natural conversation that happens in a newsroom. Um, we've gotten better at that in our virtual environment, the same way I'm sure you guys have in your classes. Um, but it's really hard. I mean, we have to really kind of force ourselves to find time to just brainstorm and share ideas and, um, you know, get over kind of the awkwardness of the, of the Zoom. Um, so that, you know, that has been just like a hugely significant change. It's interesting listening to Julie Pace, who it's worth noting is now um, chief editor at the AP. Yeah. At the time, she was just the DC bureau Congratulations, chief. Julie Pace. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and of course, former geopolitics fellow. But uh, talking about getting siloed, both in creating news and then also consuming news and trying to understand you know, the world around us. You know, When you're literally you know, locked up with just you or a few other people and you can't go and see the people you would otherwise interact with on a daily basis, it really does stifle that creativity and that political understanding. Yeah, and a lot of the news and ideas I've pitched for Fly in the Wall come from the interactions I had day to day. And while I was in my room, that's a lot harder. And I imagine in professional journalism, a lot of the pitches come in the same way where, you know, these journalists are also eyes and ears literally on the ground coming up with these headlines to write about. And so uh, this can be really stifling for creativity and professional journalism, I imagine. Yeah, and I think part of what made it so hard, she mentioned at the beginning, something I really resonate with. She thought it would only last for like a month. I think at the beginning, a lot of us were very confused about the timeline of COVID. I remember asking myself, well, I wonder when we're going on back on campus to finish the semester. And then I remember asking, hey, when are we coming back next year? And now we're back after like a year and a half. So I think we weren't really prepared to adjust the way we should have been because we couldn't have known how long this would have been. Well, one of the big adjustments that had to be made, of course, was the fact that you know, no one knew if by the time we were at another presidential election. No one knew whether or not we were still going to be, you know, isolated in our homes. So I think, Sam, you mentioned the siloing that right. happens when you're, when you're stuck at home. That's particularly difficult during an election because that's when people need to be challenging ideas and having really open conversation about these things, and you can't really do that. An, an election where the results of which kind of dragged on for a couple of days after. I mean, I think... Uh, our next episode with Sarah Rogers, we recorded when we didn't even quite know what the official results of the election were in 2020. So Dalton, I think you have uh, a clip from the Sarah Rogers interview that you'd like to share with us. Yeah, I thought it was really interesting hearing her talk about a couple of issues. Um, first was, um, while we didn't know who the president was at the time of this interview, we did know that Republicans made some gains in Congress, particularly with women candidates. So she was talking about the, the role that that could have on policy in the future. And then she made some predictions about what the big agenda items would be for the incoming president, whoever they were. Um, she talked about 
COVID relief and, and what that would look like. And it was just interesting to see the convergence of, you know, the role of women in politics with how we addressed our COVID response. So first, we hear Sarah talk about uh, the gains made in the House of Representatives, particularly by Republican women. So um, last cycle, we really did not have a lot of um, Republican women, particularly in the House. Um, and I came from the House side, like I said, what I really pay um, closest attention to. Um, but the majority, they have a much slimmer, the Democrats ha will have a much slimmer majority this year in the House. So that should have implications from a policy perspective, from a, um, you know, how, how they're going to, to govern. Um, and really with having Republican women in, in, there should be, I mean, they did bring, Republican women bring in a new, a different perspective, I think, which has been lacking. So then we also hear her predictions for what a COVID relief plan might look like with this new Congress. So I do think, um, you, know, you know, coronavirus is gonna really continue to be the focus there. So I think regardless of who wins, Trump or Biden, there will be a coronavirus, a coronavirus relief package that will pass by the end of the year potentially. Um, but I don't think that it will be as, um, you know, everybody, the Democrats want a, a much more expensive package than the Republicans want. And there's been that and a whole lot of other problems that have um, caused it from not moving forward. So I don't think it'll be quite as big as we had maybe originally intended. So I just thought it was interesting hearing her predictions, particularly how spot on they were. I mean, we had a vaccine within a month or two um, and there was a big COVID relief bill. And it was kind of a compromise where the Democrats had to cut out some things to get the necessary Republicans uh, on board, but it still was a massive bill that actually focused a lot more on families and the policies that women might bring to the table uniquely. So I think she was pretty spot on in those predictions. You know, there's an argument that the executive doesn't matter as much with bills like that because whatever the suggestion is, is going to get moderated between both parties in, in the House and Senate anyway. So I, I, thought, I thought her take there was, was really interesting. That, well, it's not really going to be too extreme either way, you know? And I feel the, like, propheticness of her predictions really comes from, like, that's experience right there. Like, she knows exactly what she's talking about. And I feel like, at that point, that's really a uh, political experience, you know? Well, I think that story about Republican women being elected was really under-highlighted throughout just the election coverage that we got throughout the pandemic because so much was focused on Trump versus Biden that the fact that the Republicans gained so many seats, not just women, but like in general, and really slimmed um, the kind of the minority in both the House and the Senate is really significant because what you see now is like, even though we did pass a coronavirus package and um, she was right about the vaccines as well, now we're kind of debating an infrastructure bill. We're debating budgeting and all that. Um, and that's tied to the fact that huge gains were made by Republicans over the past election cycle. Yeah, and I think looking forward, it looks to me at least like 2022 might be an even bigger gain uh, for Republicans in, in both chambers. Uh, so how Let's about not get ahead of ourselves here. <laughs> <laughs> Hopefully, fingers crossed. No, um, yeah, it might it might happen, and, and that could change again. It, it's just the composition, and and more important than just the party composition. Hearing her perspective on how the actual composition within the party affects national policy is unique. And we actually have a clip here from CNN talking about what the COVID plan looked like in terms of helping families, helping working women and, and single mothers and, and how that change could have been influenced by the increase in women Republicans. Yeah, so this is from March 10th of 2021. 
But the bigger payout here is the expanded child tax credit, a critical and historic effort to eradicate income inequality and child poverty. It gives parents with children six and under $3,600 per child for a year and $3,000 per child aged 7 through 17. $500 for each child 17 and 18, or full-time college students 19 to 24. Key here, direct monthly payments instead of getting a lump sum at tax time. So I thought that clip was really cool to just hear her predictions come true and to see how those uh, you know, convening storylines affected national policy. And what I think was super important about all of those important bills is that they were bipartisan. In fact, uh, Fashakir, when he was here, he mentioned the importance of bipartisanship and uh, to Joe Biden's campaign. In fact, let's roll that clip. Well, I, it never hurts to have um, more understanding of being able to sit in other people's shoes. I mean, it's generally a good rule of politics is that um, it's useful uh, you know, one of my pieces of advice for young people getting involved in public policy and politics is to do as many different jobs as you possibly can so that uh, you know a little bit about every element of um, how a system works together. The president saying this proves Republicans and Democrats can work together. None of us got what we all that we wanted. I clearly didn't get all I wanted, but this reminds me of the days we used to get an awful lot done up in the United States Congress. The $1.2 trillion plan includes $579 billion in new spending for things like transportation, roads, bridges, and broadband in rural communities. It also calls for the largest investment in the rail system since Amtrak began. Still, the president says he wanted more. So, Kelvin, just to be clear, uh, what's the specific context of the news clip that we just heard with President Biden speaking? Yeah, the context of the news clip, uh, if you look at the video, it's a video of Joe Biden with a bunch of uh, senators behind him. Basically, they're talking about the massive uh, infrastructure bill passed in early August. And uh, currently, it's trying to make its way through the House. But the idea is that it was bipartisan, and it lends to all the bipartisan talk he talked about during the campaign. So the Senate vote, which was 69 to 30, uh, was quoted by the New York Times as being uncommonly bipartisan. Here's a McConnell quote. He said that he was proud to support today's historic bipartisan infrastructure deal and prove that both sides of the political aisle can still come together around common sense solutions. It took a while to pass, though. So th yeah. there were certainly conversations in which bipartisanship was not quite happening yet. Definitely months of negotiation. Yeah, and I think that in addition to the months of negotiation that happened in the Senate, there's a lot of existing tension in the House, too, where you see how even though there can be a lot of bipartisan dialogue on these issues and what exactly constitutes infrastructure and what should be in a bill and how much money you should be putting into it, that doesn't necessarily translate into votes that are completely bipartisan. There's still a high degree of partisanship, especially in the House, and I think that's kind of where the tension is now is is you're having these bipartisan dialogues and you're trying to make it work, but in the end, it will definitely still come down to how each member votes. Yeah, and I just wanted to take a step back and go back to what you mentioned, Grace, about how there were these debates about what infrastructure even entailed, you know, Democrats having a much more expansive definition of it, whereas Republicans had a much more traditional, you know, roads, ports, bridges kind of view on that. And when, you know, the two parties have competing definitions or competing just worldviews of how to approach these major issues, whether it's infrastructure or climate change, 
it can be really hard to come together for bipartisan solutions to have real policy changes on the ground. And so, yeah, that takes us into our next interview with uh, Hillary Franz, Commissioner of Public Lands for Washington State, who talks a lot about how climate change policy needs to be affecting and helping communities on the ground rather than being concentrated squabbles in Washington, and also talking about how preventative action in the face of disasters, whether it's natural disasters like wildfires or COVID-19, can really be so beneficial in saving the government both money but also so many lives. And within that, I think too often, the issues become part of division um, versus finding the similarities and common ground. And I think climate change is a perfect example that people are now using this to fight a political war versus actually fight for what we need to change on the ground to make sure that our environment and our communities and our economy are real strong and healthy. So she's talking about climate change here, but this feels like it could be a quote about the pandemic as well, I think. That's something she focused on uh, really narrowly through this whole interview was the fact that things that should not be politicized are being politicized. All, all mm -hmm. these things that have sci a scientific basis for the decision making. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true. But I th also think that there's something to be said for the political angle of scientific debates. You know, I mean, especially we're talking about mitigating risk and things. You know, I mean, I know, I mean, she was talking about my home state of Washington State, you know. And we all sort of decided, you know, fireworks were sort of a no-go this 4th of July just because it was too dry and hot because we had had such a bad experience with wildfires. Similar with COVID, I mean, what sort of risk are we willing to accept? That's a, there's a scientific question as to what will the risk lead to, you know, how many infections, how many deaths. But then there's also the sort of political question of how much risk are we as a society willing to take and how much do we want to ask our government to intercede on our behalf? Yeah, it's why these major issues, I think, are so divisive is because there are multiple levels where you can be not on the same page as someone else. You can be not on the same page at the core level, and, and maybe this is more unfortunate, you know, about the science and about like what's true. And obviously we've seen the you know, misinformation and just debates about that. And then even if you do agree on that, you can still disagree on what to do about it because people have different levels of risk. And even with the same facts, which we don't always have, you can reach different conclusions. And so it just offers multiple layers uh, to, to have, you know, divisive issues and, and to not be able to solve things very well. Yeah, definitely. And so not being able to solve things really well um, can lead to officials, you know, really passing the buck on a lot of really important issues, whether it's COVID or climate. And so that's how I want to introduce this next clip that we're going to hear from her interview, where she talks about how um, there's been a lack of preventative action and that has cost an excess amount of dollars as well as lives we're basically reacting. Like government too often waits till the crisis is upon us before we take action. And when you're already in the midst of crisis, it will always cost more, cost more in dollars, cost more in lives at risk. Um, so specifically, we have got to be investing in the air resources at the federal and state level to get on the fires quickly and put them out. We have to be investing in our firefighters and incident management teams, the top level incident management teams yeah, and so I think this clip is relevant both for, you know, fighting fires in Washington state as well as, you know, as we mentioned earlier, fighting the pandemic, right? Um, in the beginning of the pandemic, there was a lot of questions of why we weren't investing enough in personal protective equipment or um, masks or, you know, those basic um, infrastructural needs in order to support um, people who are most at risk in the pandemic. And um, I think that's just one of the biggest troubles with preventative action, whether it's climate 
for health is that um, first of all, there's really little political capital to move on that, right? A lot of times people are disagreeing on what to do and there's no really strong push or no strong incentive to come to an agreement quickly, right? Um, because you want to rally up your voter base and really gain that political support. Um, but then also, you know, with preventative action, um, there's not really a political success there, right? Because um, if preventative action is successful, then you don't see the fruits of your success. You, you know, you've curbed a pandemic. No one's going to know that you've curbed a p pandemic except for yourself or no, you've curbed a no, wildfire. No headline says everything's fine. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I think this can, like, applies to generally any crisis situation where very often I think we can all have stories of the government, whether it's municipal government or whether it's federal government, reacting slowly to a big situation because maybe it's about information not getting to them quick enough or maybe it's about the lack of political capital, as you say, or the lack of uh, power or will to switch up the situation and like actively fight. And I think that's really interesting because there's a whole different perspective when you're actually in leadership and you're trying to make these decisions about how to deal with a crisis versus you're just a citizen like all of us. We're, we're watching these things unfold. We're watching your leaders make decisions and everyone kind of wants to be that backseat driver, but we don't understand a lot of the pressure and, and kind of the decision making behind it. And I think another issue that has really shed light on this um, is with the Biden administration's decision to withdraw from Afghanistan. Um, I think there's been a lot of talk and criticism from both sides and also people who, can we pause there? So I think that it's an issue that has been politicized as well, but um, once again, keeping in mind that difference between someone who's making those decisions and um, kind of us as experiencing it and reading about it in the news. And that really um, reminded me of our episode with former Congressman Charles DeJou, who represented Hawaii's first district in the House of Representatives. And he, um, in his episode, not only shared about his experience as a JAG officer in Afghanistan, but also provided a lot of insight into what effective leadership looks like. Having a clear idea of not only what you want to do, but how to get there and how to get people around you to make sure they're all rolling in the same direction. Um, I, I think especially in politics, it, you see a lot of politicians, it's really easy for them to just say what they want to do but they fail to communicate how to do it and what the steps are to, to, to get there and actually achieve the objectives that you, what you want. It's interesting listening to him talk about getting everybody on the same team to move forward with an objective. And I was sort of thinking about that with, as we watched sort of the coverage of the withdrawal from Afghanistan, how there was a moment when there was sort of this collective, I think as a nation, sort of moment of, of reflection and somewhat, frankly, tragic reflection of, you know, what the war has meant and, and what all of our efforts as a country have been. And then, a week or two later, as politics in 2020 tends to be, it started to feel like we weren't all on the same team. It started to be finger-pointing and blame again. And, I don't know, it feels like feeling like we're all on one team when it comes to our country and our government trying to do well, as opposed to the Republicans or Democrats scoring points against each other. I think that's a rare thing that we've lost sight of. Yeah, and looking at the evacuation from Afghanistan, seeing the kind of people that we left behind there really illustrates how disjointed the leadership was in terms of what the le what leadership had um, in mind in their withdrawal and communicating that with uh, the policymakers and the people on the ground who were implementing um, American policy in 
Afghanistan, right? Because for so much of American involvement in Afghanistan, uh, issues like women's rights and women's education were being touted, but then so many female activists and um, you know female students in Afghanistan have been left behind. And similarly, you know, with interpreters and um, Afghanistan um, individuals in Afghanistan who worked closely with the U.S. Army, you know, the U.S. leadership on top was promising these people, you know, asylum or a refuge in the United States, and then we see that you know those promises haven't come to um, haven't come to fruition, and it really shows, you know. Where were the priorities of the um, Where were the priorities of U.S. leadership there, and why were they so poorly communicated to the people who were responsible for evacuating people out of Afghan out of Afghanistan? Yeah, I think to combine the issues of kind of like political leadership with what we just talked about with Hillary France as well, it's like why does it seem to be that it takes a crisis to like bring our country together? And like that's one of the issues that a lot of us struggle with, and even that this show is kind of about is digging behind the scenes and seeing like. How do these big decisions actually be made? And is there any way to, you know, even just last week we reflected on the 20th anniversary of 9-11 and it's like, you know, that event and then now what seemed to be at least at first widely perceived as a, as a botched withdrawal from Afghanistan or just a not a great event really brought everyone together for a little bit to say, okay, this is a problem. People, you know, decisions weren't made properly. But then as Sam was just mentioning, it so quickly dissolves back into just finger pointing and get people getting back on their sides. And it's like, is there any way that we can, you know, have a sort of unified nation without some big crisis going on? Um, COVID was the same way. For a, a br brief period, we were all on the same page and then very quickly fell away. Um, and I'm just not sure if there's a great answer for that, but Congressman DeJou brings that up, and I think he's making a great point. And I think recently um, what people have been really trying to get at is what people who have served in Afghanistan and a lot of veterans have to say about the issue. Um, and Representative DeJou actually shares his own experience with us. Um, in this episode. So we'll hear a little bit about that and what he has to say about how his background in the military really influenced um, his time in Congress. Okay, so I, um, I, I, I served in Afghanistan 2011-2012. Uh, I was in uh, Kandahar province. Uh, I served the 3rd Brigade Combat Team, 10th Mountain Division. Mountain Division. Uh, I was assigned to, to take charge of something called detainee operations which is just a nice a way of saying I was in charge of enemy POW operations. Um, so what the Army had me do was, well, let me back up here a little bit. Uh, in history, in American history, when we pick up enemy POWs, historically it was pretty easy. I mean, in the Second World War, if you wore a German uniform or you wore a Japanese uniform, you were a POW and we shoved you in the POW camp. If you weren't wearing a German or Japanese uniform, we let you go. Uh, in Afghanistan, same in Iraq, the battlefield is much more complex. Because over 50% of the spending of the federal government is on Social Security, Medicare, and Medicaid, and the other 50% discretionary spending, over half of it is defense budget. That I think some of my colleagues in Congress didn't quite understand, didn't quite grasp, didn't understand why things were necessary. Conversely, I will also say that my background in the military um, gave me more confidence and it, to, to throw the BS flag, I guess, so to speak, when defense officials come in and say, hey, look, I need a billion dollars for this, or, or you know, I need $10 billion for, for something else. Yeah, I think for folks, you know, not at Georgetown, not in DC, not saturated with the politics of Washington all the time, issues like the budget, which, you know, we're seeing right now in the headlines, can seem really pedantic and really, you know, nitpicky, but really, I think Dejou makes a great point where, you know, the budget, you put your money where your priorities are. What's interesting, you, know, you <laughs> mentioned the word pedantic. What's interesting 
Let's yeah. really hammer in that the pod knows the word pedantic. <laughs> Every one of us here. All of us know that word. Dalton knows what that means. He does. We all do. We all know. I was so confident. <laughs> um, but, you know, he sort of, you know, talked about how important it was that his, that using his military background to inform his work in Congress. And I think that um, that sort of speaks to what makes a strong leader and make, what makes a strong representative on the Hill, which is bringing in your background and using it both to inform uh, decisions on the Hill and also being able to learn from your other representatives and people from around the country. I mean, that's straight out of Federalist 10. Yeah, I think that's a very good point. Uh, I think he really does talk about the power of experience on like governance, but I think that also brings up a problem with leadership in which we can only specialize in so many areas of knowledge. So if if we can't understand everything, it becomes really hard to oversee like large bills like the budget and stuff like that. So I think it's very hard to be a leader and kind of be expected to know a little bit about everything. I think what he adds is that if everyone's like hyper specialized and has a hyper specialized understanding of things, we can like come together and add our specializations and our areas of knowledge to create something bigger. Sam, you mentioned Federalist 10. Is that like a podcast episode? <laughs> or what's the... If, uh, if, if Alexander Hamilton was alive in 2021, the Federalist Papers would have been a podcast. <laughs> <laughs> and that would have been loud. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I can just speak from a military perspective a little bit on what he said. I, I think it was really interesting, the, the fact that what he highlighted about his military experience and bringing that to Congress was the ability to throw the BS flag. I thought that was interesting. That's the one thing that he like focused on is that's what his experience kind of let him do. And I think he's really got a point. It, you know, it, that expertise that, that Kelvin was talking about, it allows you to bring that to the table, not only in identifying what's the proper approach, what's the response to a rising China and a, a Russia that um, is constantly poking at our democracy. Like what, you know, what are the right things to do? How do we shift our priorities? But paired with shifting priorities is what you're shifting them from. And so he had the ability to know what was not necessary, you know, and, and I think if there's, you know, to, to bring it back to kind of the purpose of this podcast, getting people that have those experiences involved in the political process is what is so key to actually having effective results in our governance, because if people don't know what's happening on the ground, they don't know how to shift priorities properly, and if people, if groups aren't represented, then that's never going to happen. This is Dalton's pitch for all of our listeners to run for Congress. <laughs> no, yeah. we, don't put that on me. I, I do not endorse any of these people. <laughs> I, I don't really trust very many of our listeners. <laughs> or us, for that matter. Yeah. That's not good. <laughs> you're, you're right that that's been a theme of a lot of these last few interviews that we've listened to, is that like people with expertise in, in the thing that they're talking about should be the ones doing the thing that they're talking about. Um, I think what we've also learned is that there's multiple right answers to the same thing. We've heard multiple perspectives from everyone, and we've learned that there's multiple ways to tackle a problem. And I think that's something our podcast is great at getting at. And I think I really appreciated what Sam had to say about how it really comes down to us and our ability to listen to other perspectives and not just share from our own. Obviously, that's very, very important, but also to be able to sit in a room and discuss kind of where people are coming from, um, what experiences have really shaped the way that they view the world, which is kind of what Kelvin was saying. That's the heart of our podcast is to really be a fly on the wall and to listen to different people and the experiences that they've had. And that's why we're super excited to be going into um, a season where we're talking to very, very diverse perspectives from all across the political spectrum. So um, with that, we're going to kind of conclude this clip show. 
And to make sure that you never miss a Fly on the Wall Season 10 episode. Don't you dare miss a Fly on the Wall Season 10 episode. <laughs> make sure you're following us on social media at Fly on the Wall Pod. And uh, if you have anything to say, uh, feel free to send us an email anytime at our new Georgetown email address. Flyonthewall at georgetown.edu. Finally, stay up to date with geopolitics. We are so excited to have introduced our new class of Fall 2021 Fellows. They include Rebecca Piercy, Amna Nawaz, Rory Cooper, Bob Lighthizer, Charlotte Clymer, and Brian Stelter. What a group. Mm-hmm. Special shout out to our listeners who make all this work wild. Thank you so much, and we hope to catch you next week. On the fly. Did you say worthwhile? Worthwhile. (laughs) Okay, I was listening to you like, did I just say worthwhile?